Well, church family, I'd encourage you to remain standing for the reading of God's word as we come to our scripture text for the sermon today, which comes from Zechariah chapter 8. And I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. So as you're able, I'd encourage you to remain standing for the reading of it. A great passage for us. Church family, hear God's word. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore... Love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, 
Even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is God's word. Amen. This chapter 8 of the book of Zechariah has an important message for us this morning. Throughout this chapter, God is saying in one way or another that He loves His people and therefore will not give up, and therefore they must not give up. We have seen how Zechariah is preaching to the Old Testament uh, people of Israel that they are to rebuild the temple. And he's preaching along with the prophet Haggai to encourage them in that regard, and he has a message of hope. And that message of hope has been given to him through a series of visions, eight visions in one night in that extraordinary 519 B.C. evening over the night that year, one night in 519 B.C., And on the other side of those visions, Zechariah then is questioned by the people. And you can see the question in chapter 7 of verse 3. So you have the eight visions, and he summarizes them. And then they come to him, uh, the priests come to him, and the prophets, presumably representing a question from the people. And they say, should I weep? and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years. Now, we need to understand some of the context there. So the context is that God's people have been fasting and weeping and mourning on this particular month because they had been sent into exile. It was an extra fast. So the one fast that is commanded in the Old Testament is the fast on the Day of Atonement, But because they had gone into exile, uh, the leaders of God's people had called upon uh, the people to mourn, to weep, to fast. And so Zechariah and Haggai have come along and they're preaching hope and encouragement and a new day, build the temple. And so naturally enough, God's people have a question for them, which is, should we go on weeping? And Zechariah essentially gives two different answers to that. The first answer is chapter 7, where he basically says, look, you need to understand the reason why you went into exile was not because you didn't fast right. Don't you remember how the prophets came to you and said, the kind of fasting I want, says the Lord, is uh, dealing with injustice and dealing with poverty and having mercy on the, on the weak and the, and, and the disadvantaged. And it's, it's not that you got your fasting wrong, 
that you went into exile, so that you didn't obey me, you didn't obey the Lord, you had idols, you didn't take care of the weak and the, uh, uh, and the poor. So the issue is not fasting. But then comes his second answer that God gives him in this chapter 8. And this chapter 8 has a structure to it. It's structured around 10 repetitions. And each of the repetitions that God says, each time it says, thus says the Lord, is an expression of His of his love, of his protective love, of his attitude to his people. Uh, It's called jealousy here, but jealousy doesn't mean what we tend to think it means in contemporary English, which is envious and jealous in that sense. It's, It's a passionate, protective love of a husband to his wife or a wife to her husband. There's an intimacy, a, an exclusive relationship between God and His people that He is protective of. And this passage is saying that God in all His power, the Lord of hosts, declares ten times over His love. And therefore, it's not the time to mourn or fast or to be sad. No, it's the time to feast. He is saying that he loves his people and therefore will not give up on them. And therefore, they must not give up. So I say, I, I, I do sense this is a particularly important message, not just for us as a church, but for our day, and for any day. Uh, preachers down through the years have always discovered that it is surprisingly difficult to persuade people that God loves them. Something about the human condition means that deep down we find it nearly impossible to accept that God loves us. After all, we live in a world of pain and suffering. And if God is indeed the Lord of hosts, He's almighty, how can He love us? It was D.L. Moody who, in his church in downtown Chicago in the 19th century, had a visiting preacher come for a sermon that was given on a, on a Friday evening. And the visiting preacher uh, gave a sermon on John chapter 3, verse 16, which, of course, is, For God so loved the world. And then that went particularly well. And so on a Sunday morning, he gave another sermon on the same text, For God so loved the world, God loves the world, and that, that was kind of loud, um, that went well, 
And so he preached again on Sunday evening on the same text, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so, so loved the world. And then he preached again Monday evening on the same text, and on and on and on. And D.L. Moody, in um, the, the biography of him written by his son, said it was a turning point in his ministry. He realized that people needed to be persuaded over and over and over again that God loves them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that therefore, because God loves us, that He gives us permission to do whatever we want or that truth doesn't matter or righteousness doesn't matter. None of those things are a correct understanding of God's love. But He does love the world. And He does love His people. And it's particularly difficult not only in general terms for us to accept that because of the human condition right back from Genesis chapter 3 when the temptation of the the serpent, of course, was did God really say, that is questioning the goodness and the kindness and and, and, and the love of God towards us, did God really say, questioning His word, questioning His character, questioning the the truthfulness of God, did God really say, and questioning that what he said is really good. That thus declares the Lord of hosts his love. It's in the human condition, but but particularly right now, as we've already had in our announcements and our prayers because of the global situation, we all sense a feeling of disturbance. Uh, my wife, Rochelle, shared with me a meme. You know what a meme is? It's a, a picture that becomes sort of popular that's passed around the internet. And on the picture, there's a particular phrase. And this meme had a picture of a young child studying at school with her face down, looking really miserable as she was studying. And then the words behind the picture were, student in 2050 studying the history of the world in 2019 to 2022. Here we are. Who would have thought it? Two years of COVID on whatever has happened with COVID. And all the divisiveness over what should have been done and what should not have been done and all that. And we're just thinking like, okay, it's a new day and then there's Ukraine. And we feel disturbed. And when you feel disturbed, you feel like giving up. And this passage is saying God loves his people, therefore will not give up, and therefore they must not give up. Well, let's see how this passage teaches us that. So look down with me at verse 2. There are these ten promises that I think are designed specifically to reflect the ten commandments that they've just been told in chapter 7 
was the issue. They didn't obey God. Here come ten promises of God's love for rebels like us. The first one is in chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, uh, verse 2 of chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Now, we could spend the next 45 minutes passing out the number of times that word jealousy is used in the Old Testament to describe the intimate relationship of God with his people. What it is indicating here is that God has an exclusive marriage with his people, a covenant relationship with his people, that he is the covenant God, that his love for them is a protecting jealousy, that he won't allow them to be destroyed, that he will care for them in the same way that a husband is rightly jealous for his wife and a wife rightly jealous for her husband, not that kind of weird, envious jealousy and all, all that sort of psychotic kind of jealousy, but the protective love that is right to have over an exclusive relationship, that she's mine and I'm hers. And God's people are His, and He is ours, and He's jealous for us and will protect us. This is the principle that undergirds every part of this passage of His love, His jealous love. But it's such a… the word itself is, is so filled in our English language with negativity that we can't see the positive message that it is, that he's saying, I won't allow you to be destroyed. I'm jealous for you. I will protect you. You are mine. You're my people. I have a covenant with you. The Almighty God surrounds His church. He loves them with not a weak passive, sentimental love, but a strong, sovereign, almighty embrace. He's jealous for His people. And then again, He says, verse 3, this is the second of these promises, each one introduced with the phrase, thus says the Lord, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now remember, each time we look at these prophecies from the Old Testament, we need to remember the triple horizon of Old Testament prophets that we have indicated uh, several times as we look into the book of Zechariah, that, that the Old Testament prophets saw the immediate horizon as fulfilled in this case with the rebuilding of the temple and Zerubbabel the governor and, 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 and God's people being restored. That's the immediate horizon. Then the next horizon is the coming of Jesus when he comes to the temple and he, he rebuilds 
his own body, which is the temple, that he dies and rises again, and then the, the, the gospel of Christ goes throughout the world, and this city of God, the church, is built. And then there's a further horizon when the Jerusalem that is to come in the mystery of the book of Revelation, the mountain of the Lord, the holy city, will be finally established in the new heaven and new earth. And each of these horizons is here in this promise. And God is saying, therefore, that His people, His church, He will build. As Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Zion, the city of God, God's people, will be established. The third promise is in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. This, too, is part of God's protective jealous love, that His people, His city, His church will be a place where the vulnerable are safe. The old man and the old woman with their walker or their cane are secure. And boys and girls, with all the vulnerability that young people have because of their stage of life, are also safe, but not only safe, playing God's people are to be the kind of people where children have fun, where children play. Church is not to be the place where children find it serious. Oh, there is, a, of course, there is a seriousness to the message of God, but there's a joy too. Let them play. Let them have fun. Church is not meant to be dire and dour, boring, sad. Church is meant to be a place where children play. It's part of the expression of the fatherly love of God. I can hear one playing right now. The fourth promise is in verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, once again, like the word jealousy, we're here looking at a word with rich meaning throughout the Scriptures. 
throughout the Bible. And when it says here, is it marvelous, what it's indicating is this biblical theology throughout the Scriptures that, that God for His people acts in ways that are supernatural, miraculous, above and beyond what we could do that will make us marvel, marvelous. It reflects um, all the way back to Abraham and Isaac, uh, Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac where they couldn't believe that God would give them a child that age and it seemed too marvelous, incredible, unlikely, extraordinary. And yet God did it. It looks forward to another woman who gave birth to another child in that time, not because she was too old, she was young, but because she had not known a husband and she gave, she had a virgin birth to the Messiah. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too marvelous? And it's reflected in Jesus' teaching that nothing is impossible for the one who believes that there is in the nature of God as Almighty, the Lord of hosts, and in His way of acting for His people, He does things that we cannot do, that are above and beyond our ability, that are supernatural, if you want to use that way of expressing it, that are going to make us say, that's, that's marvelous. part of God's love. And of course, the marvel that they will see is the rebuilding of the temple. And the marvel that we have seen is the birth of the Messiah and His death and resurrection and the giving of His Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. And the marvel that we have not yet seen is when Jesus returns he will do things that are above and beyond what we can ask or imagine. They will be marvelous. Such is his love, his jealous love, his protecting love for his people. The fifth promise is in verse 7. Again, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. This promise is emphasizing, of course, God's saving power. I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. And how God, when he saves his people, he brings them together as a people. Um, and he says, they shall be my people, and I will be their God, a promise that is echoed throughout, again, another one of these promises that's echoed throughout the Bible and is fulfilled finally in the new heaven and the new earth where God dwells with his people in its utter fulfillment of this promise. God is a saving God, and his saving power 
is sovereign. I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. He will do it. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. We tell our friends about Jesus. We write books and blogs and emails to point people to Jesus. And we wonder whether any of it will make any difference. And God here promises, I will save. God has sovereign saving power. The sixth promise is uh, from verse 9 all the way to verse 13. I won't read it all out again, but again, but just notice that once more, each time, this is introduced by the phrase, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and then the heart of it is in verse 12, for there shall be a sowing of peace. So part of the expression of God's love is that he brings peace because of our peace with God, therefore peace with each other. And we all know that there has been rancor and divisiveness over masks and vaccines. And indubitably, without any doubt, there'll be at some point or other divisiveness over the right policy to take with Ukraine or whatever it is. It, it will come. But we as God's people have a peace with each other that is bigger than any of that, the blood of Jesus. My peace with you is defined not by temporary politics, but by the eternal covenant of God. And he will sow peace because of his jealous love for all his people. For all of them. The seventh promise is in verse 14. It goes to verse 17. Again, I won't read it all out for you, but note that once more it's introduced by the phrase, for thus says the Lord of hosts. And the heart of it is in verse 15. So again, I have purpose in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. Once more, this is particularly relevant to our day. So many people these days are preaching bad, anger, conflict, war, divisiveness. But we, Christians have a message of good news. So again, I have purpose in these days to bring good. That is God's plan. All things work together for the good of those who love Him. Well, the eighth promise is in uh, verse 18. And the word of the Lord of the hosts, again, notes the same phrase for each of these ten promises. Thus, verse 19, says the Lord of hosts, that same phrase, uh, 
And here he's reflecting the question which this whole section from verse, chapter 7 and 8 um, is a response to in verse 3 of chapter 7. He's talking about these fasts, their mourning, and what he says is, now, I'm promising this, there will be seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. The fasting will be feasting because he has a jealous love for his people. The ninth promise is in verse uh, 20. Once again, thus says the Lord of hosts, and uh, he's saying that peoples shall yet come. Peoples meaning all nations. Verse 22, many peoples and strong nations shall come. God's movement of his people is a multinational people. It's a multiracial people. It's just a fact that the largest parts of the church are not in Western Europe or America. They're in Africa and Asia. That's because God loves his people of whatever color. And then finally, the uh, 10th promise in verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now again, remember the triple horizon promise. This was fulfilled when God's temple was rebuilt, and there was a new prosperity and time of blessing, and they saw that, and people wanted to be a part of it. And then it's fulfilled in the city of God, the New Testament church, where in the book of Acts... People say exactly this, that they want to be a part of that group. They esteem the church. They have a positive view of what's going on. They want to hear the gospel. And that, of course, is what we long for and pray for, that the, the peoples around will want to hear the Bible and the gospel and to be a part of the church and it is an expression of God's jealous love for his people that he wants to bring nations from every language and that's finally fulfilled of course in that great gathering in the new heaven and the earth, where there'll be people for every tribe and nation and language. So God loves his people and therefore will not give up. Or as Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He has a jealous love for his people, an exclusive embrace. And nothing, no circumstances, no culture war, no divisiveness, no rancor, no power in heaven or on earth, not even the gates of hell, will prevail against his almighty, sovereign love. And therefore, of course, we must not give up. And that, too, is here in this passage. There are several times there are different ways that the passage expresses that encouragement for us to be strong. Look at verse 9 where it says, let your hands be strong. Uh, 
Or again, um, verse 13, fear not, but let your hands be strong. Or verse 16, speak the truth to one another. Render your against judgments that are true and make for peace. Be those who articulate the truth of God and the, and, and the right judgment of God's righteousness, which is true and makes for peace among God's people as we're reconciled to God and then reconciled to each other. We need to be strong and not fear. Why? Because God loves. His sovereign power is exercised, is activated towards his people in an exclusive embrace to bring yet more into his people, a love for the world too. And therefore, those of us this morning who know Jesus and love him, we are not to give up. I um, recently watched again a, a movie about Winston Churchill when he was at a particularly difficult moment in his leadership. He'd just become prime minister, and the war cabinet that he had constituted had turned against him, and they wanted to have appeasement towards Hitler. And Churchill was marginalized, and in the movie, at any rate, he takes the underground the subway for the first time in his life he, and he's with the people and they're rather surprised to see Winston Churchill and he asks them what they think he should do if we stand firm there will be blood and death if we ask now maybe we could have a reasonable deal and one by one, when he says, should we give up? They say, never. God loves you. And if you're a believer, he has a plan for you. And if you're not, come to him this morning that you can be a part of that plan, a plan that will not be derailed. He will not give up on you. And therefore, we must not give up either. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you that you do love your people. Thank you for your sovereign love that is expressed so clearly in this passage over and over and over again. We pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would help us to receive your love. Would you pour out your Spirit upon this congregation that we might know intellectually and experientially your love for us that is stronger than the grave and against which even the gates of hell cannot prevail, that you died and rose again. You gave your life for our, us, for our sins. Such is your love. 
And so we pray that we then might be faithful to you in the power of your spirit and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.